This episode is brought to you. Six times? Six times? Six times? Six times? From our studios in Lala Plaza Studios, New York City, I'm Mason Lane. This is Cold Case Crime Cuts. Stories without prejudice, stories sans frontiers, stories uber alles, stories buen provecho, stories voulez-vous coucher avec moi, stories qui chantent, stories that have been sung in song. Listen out for them, maybe before you listen to this. Stories. Cold Case Crime Cuts is a production of NAR, National American Radio, in collaboration with the Surface to Wear Sound Collective and our friends over at Soluble Radio in the UK. Find them on Snapchat at Soluble Radio on Snapchat. Episode 6, Moonlight Shadow. On the surface of the outside of it, this is a simple story. A simple story of a silvery night, a Saturday, a desperate fight, sorrow, grieving, someone who may or may not have become lost in a riddle that Saturday night. A man shot six times by a man, a different man, on the run, by, perhaps most chillingly and certainly confusingly, the silhouette of a gun. But find out how to push through that surface of this story, and you'll end up far away on the other side of it altogether, in a place far more curious and multricate than it first appears. In this episode of Cold Case Crime Cuts, we're going on a journey to the light side of the moon. She was caught in the middle of the 105. The 105 is a road that goes throughout here somewhere on the way up through New York State. Many places in America have a Route 105. Numerically speaking, it makes sense. Digger Pliskin lives along Route 105 as it snake winds its way through Dutchess County, between the Hudson River on its west and the New York-Connecticut border if you point the other way. He lives at the beginning of the road, near where it starts, and also to near where a man seemingly got shot dead six times by a man on the run. So it seems fitting to start our story here, too. She was right there. On the night in question, Digger saw a woman. She was right there in the central reservation, caught in the middle of the 105. If you know the 105 in Dutchess County, you'll also know that it doesn't really have a central reservation, or median, as we say here. It's a county road, not a highway, and even a road with a central reservation, or median, as we say here, would have a hard time catching someone in its middle and tangling them up in it. In most cases, you could just hop over or walk across it, although that's not recommended due to traffic. So, immediately straight away, we have a question. Is Digger lying about what he saw? Another question. Is he mistaken? It's the very beginning of the podcast, and I'm already suspicious, especially when he adds, Far away on the other side. Digger's testimony now suggests he saw a woman caught in the middle at the same time as she was far away on the other side. Already, this story is full of holes. But before we answer that question, we need to know how relevant Digger's recollection are. He also told me, It was 4 a.m. in the morning. Which seems suspiciously precise and not a little tautological. Like I said, it's only the beginning of the episode, and something seems off. To be honest, with hindsight, maybe we should have put this interview more in the middle of the podcast, or even far away on the other side of it, and maybe then it wouldn't arouse such suspicion, as we'd have more context in terms of what really happened on that moonlit night. Perhaps then, we need to go back not just to the beginning of the podcast, but also to the beginning of the whole mystery story. This is that mystery. This is that story. This is Cold Case Crime Cuts. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Mason Lane from the Cold Case Crime Cuts podcast. 
Have you ever heard the expression, I don't have a dog in this fight? Sure you have. But the good news is that it's not something you need ever say again. Because as a listener to Cold Case Crime Cuts, you can now get a 10% discount on a vicious dog. With available breeds including everything from UK Pitbull to American Bastard, you can be confident that whichever dog you go for, it'll be super handy in a fight because of the way it's been mistreated. You just never know when you might need to have a dog in a fight, but now you don't have to worry because you'll always have one, fully muzzled until the fight starts. Since I heard about these guys, I'm rarely without one. Never say, I don't have a dog in this fight again by going to I do have a dog in this fight dot slash dot dog dot USA to send off for your fighting dog. Muzzle not included. This is Sheriff John B. Sloop from Hazard, Nebraska. I got me two dangerous animals with aggressive tendencies, and if you want to get yourself some of that biting and barking, then you should talk to the guys at I do have a dog in this fight dot US mother loving A. As recommended by law enforcement, use Cold Case Crime Cuts Fighting Dog for discount. That's all one word. Cold Case Crime Cuts Fighting Dog for discount. This is Cold Case Crime Cuts with me, Mason Lane, and we're examining a case that has continued to puzzle anyone who's ever heard or seen of it. It's shrouded almost completely in shadow, but, crucially, not daytime sun shadow, but moon shadow. Nighttime moon shadow that makes it hazy and not as clear as, for example, a sun shadow might be. Here's what we know. It's early morning. 4 a.m. in it, to be over and unnecessarily specific. Suddenly, a man has ended up dead, shot six times by what we are told is a man, presumably another man, there's no evidence of foul suicide, on the run. There's another man, Digger, whose story conflicts with his own story. There's also a woman, on later evidence, she's called Maggie, yet she would be the first to say that she didn't have a clear view of events. Actually, in truth, she would be the second to say it, because Danielle is a forensic police meteorologist, an expert in forensic police meteorology, who I asked to maybe be able to shed some light where previously there wasn't any apart from the moon one. To avoid confusion, I should say at the outset that Dan Yell is a man, and he identifies as one too. His name is Dan, Yell. He's not a woman or someone who identifies as one with the name Danielle. To see how clear the events could be seen, especially at night, we first need to look at what kind of night the night in question was. Full disclosure, he does have quite a feminine voice. The timeline is conflicting. This is new information. In what sense? Well, look at this. Dan hands me a witness statement from the old case file. It's written on paper, which is pretty standard for the time. My eyes are drawn to a drawing of a circle. It's not exact. It's more of a freehand oval around a single sentence. A sentence that reads, trees that whisper. See here, this witness, Maggie, mentions trees that whisper in what she describes in her statement as the evening. So that gives us a timeline of evening, which means that we're looking at the time between the end of what most people would call the afternoon and the beginning of nighttime. Uh, it very much depends when you can. I'm listening to Danielle. Dan, yell. But not really, because something about what's in the scrawled oval is bothering me. Trees that whisper. What does that mean? Are we supposed to believe these trees could talk? And if they could talk, what could they tell us about what happened? But if they can't talk, which of course trees can't, just who or what was whispering in them? And why is this sentence in an oval? It's yet another mystery to add to the growing heap of piled up anomalies that are beginning to surround this particular case. Oh, and in case you were wondering, regarding the description of the trees, by the way, as a forensic meteorologist, I can tell you that this means that there was a light, possibly light to medium, wind or breeze blowing through them. Right, I wasn't wondering. And the oval? I drew that. 
Why? Why did you oval these particular words? Just to remind me to explain to you what it meant. Right. Good. Sure. Fine. Yep. Sure. So this Maggie claims in her witness statement that it's evening. Yet here too is a mystery because that directly challenges Digger's claim that it was 4 a.m. in the morning. Remember Digger, the guy called Digger from earlier? The guy whose interview might be in the wrong place in the edit? Well, now we have Maggie's conflicting account, describing how she heard the trees whispering in that evening, which, while now self-explanatory thanks to a forensic meteorologist's oval, seems to me to be a little over-elaborate as a description, perhaps more suited to a poem or similar than an official police statement. What it does do, though, is place them both at the scene, corroborating their stories, albeit with two different time frames, and also suggesting that the woman Digger saw was, in fact, Maggie. I make a mental note in my mind, which is pretty standard for the time, which, at the time of recording the interview with Danielle, is 9 a.m. in the morning. I mention this because it's beginning to appear that time could be quite significant in this case. So, based on the evidence, what we have are two different time frames. Dan's right. That's exactly what we have. I've just said as much myself in the narration. He tells me that evening and 4 a.m. in the morning are two completely different and, it's fair to say, separate times. But that's not all. Look at this. I do. It's a signed affidavit. Dan has ovaled another sentence. It's a signed affidavit. I've ovaled another sentence. Okay. And it says that, if you look here, the night was heavy. Heavy as in... What does it mean? Well, I've run it through a computer, uh, specifically thesaurus.com, and it could mean sort of murky, foggy, gloomy, misty, dim even. In police forensic meteorological terms, maybe oppressive? Sure. A sort of thick darkness? Sure. Shadowy? Why not? It was conclusive. Shadowy. A shadowy night that could easily, as I mentioned earlier, prevent a witness from having a clear view of events. It was time certainly in terms of the edit, to talk to Maggie. After this. Cold Case Crime Cuts is sponsored by filling in a form on our website. It was the last that ever I saw him. This is Maggie. This is Crime Case Cold Cuts. She sounds like, and is, a woman. I'm talking to her on Zoom, and she's wearing cropped hair, a sleeveless vest, and an expression that says she's trying hard to remember what happened on that heavy, shadowy night. Remember Digger from earlier? The guy that lived at the start of the 105? The guy who said he saw a woman caught in the middle of it, near to where a man got shot six times by a man on the run? I open my mental note from earlier and read it in my mind. I want to know something important. I want to know if that woman was Maggie. I don't know. I mean, it could have been me. Everything happened so fast, I didn't have a clear view. After the shooting, I definitely ran across the 105. From far away on the other side? Yes, but I don't recall whether or not I got caught in the middle of it. In all honesty, the 105 isn't a highway, you know? It's a county road, and so it doesn't have a central reservation. But even if it did, I'd have just hopped over it and crossed it rather than become tangled in it. This rings true. I deduced as much from my own investigation into the 105, despite not visiting it yet. But do you think it's possible that Digger saw you in the middle of it, in the middle of the 105? It's possible, sure. Like I said, it happened fast, and it's all a bit of a blur. Is that why you didn't have a clear view of events? 
Because of the blur? Yes, and because it was far away on the other side. Maggie seems unsure. Perhaps the trauma of the events was clouding, shadowing her memories. Can I ask, what was the weather like? I don't know. Maybe kind of humid? Sticky? Heavy? Maybe. There's that word again. Heavy. I pushed Maggie for more details. Shadowy? I guess. I didn't really see anything. Any more details, Maggie? Think carefully. The stars moved slowly. It was silvery. Maggie seems detached. She falls silent, lost in her own thoughts. After all, I was asking her to relive a tragedy. So with that in mind, I pressed on, because otherwise this wouldn't be much of a podcast. And then came a detail I was not expecting. All I saw was the silhouette of a gun. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Mason Lane from Crime Case Cold Cuts, and if you'd like to promote your product, why not consider a live read? A live read couldn't be simpler. It's just a podcast presenter from a podcast you're into or are listening to, taking time out from that podcast to tell you about something you might be unaware of in return for money. Fact. Most podcasts are listened to on the move, such as while exercising or busy. That means it's kind of awkward to get out your phone or your player and skip through. So most listeners just tend to stick with a live read message, knowing it won't be too long until they're back to the actual podcast itself. Therefore, it's an effective tool to promote your business and or unwanted product. Here's some example of great live reads from podcasts you might already know. Hi, it's Shelly from Vaginal Mysteries. Have you ever thought about a will? What's up, guys? Brad Nabbit here, host of the Wherever You Get Your Podcast podcast. Do you want to declutter your gun cabinet? Well, the guys at WeBuyAnyGun.web will buy them from you and redistribute them to people who can't legally get a firearm license for whatever reason. They'll take anything off your warm, alive hands, from 22 caliber rifles to high-powered assault weapons with military-grade speed loaders and red dot sights. If you want to declutter your home armory, then get in touch with the guys at WeBuyAnyGun.web. Bang! And the guns are gone! Hi, it's Wendy from Sick Puppies Podcast. Do you like ice cream? It's that easy. Get your product or business front or and center in a podcast. The Business Development Department at National American Radio, home of Cold Case Crime Cuts, definitely say it's the world's fastest growing medium. Thank you for listening. This is Cold Case Crime Cuts. A quick recap. We have a mystery wrapped in an enigma, wrapped in a conundrum, wrapped in a riddle, wrapped in a puzzle, somehow wrapped around the central reservation, or median, as we say here, of a road that may or may not even have one. A man is shot six times by a man on the run. More of that soon. We have a witness, Maggie, who just remembered that she saw the silhouette of a gun. But who is Maggie exactly, and what was she doing there? And could what she saw be a silhouette of a gun that shot the man six times, or the silhouette of a different gun entirely? Plus, another witness, Digger Pliskin, says he saw a woman that could have been Maggie in the middle of the road. We know the night was heavy, too. Shadowy, the evidence says. But something else that Maggie said was intriguing. Stars move at different speeds. Furiosa Royal is an astronomist of 30 years standing, despite spending a good portion of that time sitting at a desk or telescope. She works out of a dome in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, not far from the Trail of the Lonesome Pine. It's a so-called dark sky area, but I've come to talk to her this night with the hope that she'll shed some additional light on the mystery. I've checked the dates on our charts, and on your night in question there was a moon and clearly visible stars in that sky, and that would have made the night appear silvery. This was interesting. Silvery, like Maggie said. 
Sorry, was that narration or? That was to you. We put the narration in afterwards. Okay, well, yes, because, well, look through here. Furiosa leads me towards her telescope. Even though I know next to nothing about them, I can see it has a two and a half meter primary mirror and a polar disc and fork type of equatorial mount. I note that the instruments can be mounted either at the prime focus or the Cassegrain focus, and they offer the possibility of carrying out both wide field imaging and intermediate to low dispersion spectroscopy. Look through this. She leads me around the telescope and points to a window. I take a look. Through it, I can see the sky. It leads to my next question. How fast do stars go? Stars move at different speeds. Uh, Sorry, can you say that again? And then I can decide which one works best to introduce the interview in the edit. Say... Say, stars move at different speeds. Again? Yes. It gives me two options in the edit. Stars move at different speeds? I'll use the first one. Thank you. Carry on. Okay, well, our sun... We don't have a child together. She's talking about the one in the sky. ...orbits the center of our galaxy at roughly 125 miles per second, yet there's a class of so-called hypervelocity stars, or HSVs, that can travel in excess of 2 million miles per hour. This gets quite boring quite quickly, but Astronomer's Royal is able to comprehensively destroy Maggie's claim about slowly moving stars. I may not know much about telescopes, but I do know that 125 miles per second isn't slow at all. It's fast, as is 2 million miles per second. I start to tell Astronomist Royal about some recent problems I've had with the speedometer in my car, but I can tell she's not interested. So instead I say, So Maggie isn't telling the truth. Who is Maggie? Can I look through your telescope? No. I pick up a detailed leaflet about the telescope on my way out and reflect, like the low chromatic aberration parabolic mirrors inside it, on my discoveries so far. But then the mystery, wrapped in an enigma, wrapped in a conundrum, wrapped in a riddle, wrapped in a puzzle, deepens. Because the very next day, while I was relaxing and thinking the case through on my day off on a visit to a zoo, I get another call from Danielle, the forensic police meteorologist from earlier. And he has some shocking news. Hi, Dan. Hi, Mason. So, look, after you left, I went back through the weather records that night. To be honest, I don't know why I didn't think of it before or while you were here, and it threw up something interesting. To be fair, this may mean nothing. My dog once threw up something interesting. It was a dead slug, and it had no bearing whatsoever on this case. In cold case crime investigations, I've learned that it doesn't pay to get too excited too quickly. It's best, like when your dog vomits up a slug, to trod carefully. So, on that night, what we have is a night that has been described as heavy. Or shadowy, sure. And the data's records seem to back that up, okay? So, it was summer, there was a high-pressure front over the region, and a storm on the way, so it was humid and kind of stifling and sticky, heavy. And shadowy, go on. But then I went back and cross-checked that, where the witnesses claimed that the trees were whispering. This was Maggie's claim the one that Dan had ovaled in her statement. He said that it indicated a breeze or a small wind. Where was he going with this? But on a humid, stifling, sticky night, there would have been very little wind, if any. So I figured that someone or something, either the witness or the weather, was lying. I still wasn't entirely sure where Dan was heading with this, not after he'd been so careful to oval parts of Maggie's witness statement. So I did some digging. Okay. To keep weather records from decades ago in a locked time capsule in the earth, Good idea. Thanks. And when I finish digging, what do I find? I don't know what Dan finds, so I ask him. What did you find? I find another contradiction. Yes, on the night we're talking about, the records say that the night was heavy, but also... I could sense we were getting to the crux hub of Dan's discovery. And I quote, the air was alive. What does that mean? I don't know. This was big. Is big. Are big. Let's break it down. 
In a case that just keeps drip-feeding mystery drips, what we now have is a man shot six times on a night that some one witness says is the evening, but another says was 4 a.m. in the morning. It's perfectly true that a night can encompass both of these times, but what isn't true is that an incident can happen simultaneously at them. Not unless we get into the realm of quantum mechanics, but that's something that neither I nor this podcast is or are equipped to do. At face value, then, we have a conflict of time. We also have a conflict of weather. Heavy, that is to say, not windy, according to no less an authority than a police forensic meteorologist. And yet we also have whispering trees, which indicates a wind that records show wasn't there. Added to this, we also now have evidence that the air was somehow alive. The night that night was heavy, and the air was alive, Dan tells me. It's another twist in the tale. For clarity, spell T-A-L-E, not T-A-I-L. I immediately got off the phone with Dan and went to see him again instead and also in person. He suggested we meet outside in some weather, which he said might help. By the time I got there, it's like a two, two and a half hour train ride, but I drove so it was longer. I've done some more digging. Dan is holding a spade and a lot of paper. So, like I said on the phone, the description of the night in the file reads, the night was heavy, but the air was alive. See, here? I look at the file. In handwriting, not type. It does say exactly that. Nothing is ovaled. But there's equally nothing to suggest the police ever followed up on the claim. Forensic police meteorology wasn't much of a thing back then, like it is now. So it could be significant that the night was heavy. And the air was alive? Sure, we'll get to that. But first, in purely forensic police meteorological terms, you have to remember that the opposite of heavy is, of course, light. And we are talking about a night with a moonlight shadow, and I don't think we can rule any significance out of that. It turned out later that we could. But if the air on the night was also alive, then that suggests there was something in it, like wasps or a midge. But, and this is perhaps something the investigators missed at the time, maybe it was alive with wind, and that's what made the trees whisper. These are the trees that whispered in the evening from before. The trees Dan had ovaled. And look, what does it say here? Dan shows me a document that, like all the documents he's showing me, I haven't seen before. It's another witness statement in which the same witness, Maggie, has statemented that during the evening in question, they heard the whispering trees sing a song of sorrow and grieving. This isn't just a surprise. It's a revelation. A new fact that until now had been buried both in a statement and in the ground. It could be important, so I asked Dan if it's forensic police meteorologically possible for trees or wind to even do that. He tells me he's not sure about trees, as it's not his level of expertise. I need to talk to a forensic police arboreologist for that. But in terms of wind... No. I I mean, wind can make different, almost musical sounds blowing across different surfaces and materials. There are so-called singing deserts in Africa, and clarinet players in orchestras, for instance. But for wind to cause a tree to sing any kind of recognizable song of sorrow and grieving? No. Not possible. What's wrong with your dog? It was a gift from our podcast sponsor. It wants a fight. So, if a question remains over whether a night can be both heavy and alive at the same time, and, if so, alive with what if we can rule out identifiable lyrics and or music emanating from foliage, there is no question that a man is dead. And that brings us back to the silhouette of a gun. And that brings us back to Maggie. All I saw was the silhouette of a gun. A great philosopher once wrote, If a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to listen to it, does it actually fall at all? Similarly, if a tree sings a song of sorrow and grieving near a road and a witness hears it, does it actually sing? And if a man is shot to dead near those trees, could it be at the hands of a silhouette of a gun? And just as Maggie was seen caught in the middle of the 105, she could also be at the center of this case. But just who is Maggie? I see dead people. 
I was not expecting that. I spoke with Maggie on and off many times for this podcast. Over the course of many interviews and almost as many hours, she said many things that almost defy explanation. For instance, during our first meeting, the one when she told me about the silhouette of a gun, she also said, I watched a vision forming. Dead people? Remember, too, her witness statement that Danielle undug from a forensic police meteorology time capsule? She said she heard trees sing a song of sorrow and grieving. She said it again to me on the phone when I asked her about it later. They sounded sad. And when pushed, Maggie told me she remembered seeing the silhouette of a gun. She told me that it, too, was far away on the other side. Of what, though? Of the 105, the road that winds its way through Dutchess County, New York State? Or something else? And where were the singing trees, the trees that whisper in the evening? Were they in the middle of the 105? I can answer that. That's not where they were, because it doesn't have any kind of central reservation. Or median, as we say here. Did they sing? I can answer that definitively now, too. No, they didn't. I sound sure. I am sure. I'm also now sure that nothing Maggie has said can be relied on. Why am I sure? Because of the next conversation I was to have with Maggie's carer. Hello? Who are you? My name's Mason Lane. I'm with the Cold Case Crime Cuts podcast. I don't care. Maggie's not allowed a phone. I'm hanging up now. Sorry, I don't understand. What's... The silhouette of a gun! At first, I was unsure as to what was going on. Subsequent investigations and an angry medical professional revealed that, far from being a reliable witness, Maggie is actually a patient in a secure hospital and prone to inventing elaborate fantasies. She wasn't allowed a Zoom or a phone, let alone out. And so her version of events, trees, guns, slow stars, silhouettes of guns, and middles of roads is flimsy at best. After Maggie had been restrained, I spoke on the phone to her carer, who didn't want to be on the podcast, so her words are spoken by a child. Please don't call this number again. If you look at a map where the 105 goes through Dutchess County, New York, what you can't fail to notice, although I did, is the large medical facility in the woods, set back from the road. It was built in 1983 as an institution for the confused. These days, that is not a politically correct term, but back then it was, and also back then it was home to mental people, and although that's probably also not a politically correct term these days, it still is. It was time for me to drive upstate to take a look. It's 66 miles as the crow flies from NYC to Dutchess County, but 75 miles as the car drives. Longer in traffic if you go the wrong way. It's not far, but what happened out here where a man died feels a million miles away as both the crow flies and the car drives than when, say, a man dies on the floor of somewhere like New York City. It feels nicer out here somehow. The air's cleaner. It takes me four hours to reach Dutchess County. The car, my speedometer has broken, so instead this is a cheap rental from Sam's Cheap Rentals on 55th and 413th, is a mistake, and that makes me even more determined not to make another one as I lurch park it at the side of the 105, roughly half a mile from the Moonlight Medical Facility, over there in the trees. As I step out of the car, the first thing I notice is that air. It's daytime, so it's not heavy, but somehow it does feel more alive as I walk into the trees to find the exact spot where a man died. This is it. This is the boundary of the grounds of Moonlight Medical Facility where Maggie lives and where, on occasion, she would walk those grounds muttering about singing trees. I know now that the trees themselves are supplemented by an extremely dense hedge that surrounds the property, 
And that's also why Maggie couldn't have been here either in the middle of the 105 that night or witnessed any of the events that unfolded far away on the other side of it. I'm no forensic police arboreologist, but even with layman's eyes, I can see that this hedge is thick and impenetrable, and in all honesty, there's no or little way she could have found out how to push through. Am I any closer to finding out what happened? I'm certainly closer to where it happened, because I've driven here in an old 1990 Buick station wagon, because that was all they had left. I'm here because hopefully I'm starting to get some more answers. And to hopefully start to get some more answers, it was time to turn my attention to the dead man. Maybe he could help. This is the sound of a fight. It was caught on CCTV in this woodland just off the 105 in Dutchess County, New York. And what you are hearing is a desperate fight depicted on tape. Full disclosure, while the CCTV is there for the security of a medical facility, it doesn't have sound, so we've mocked it up as a reenactment. The picture is murky, shadowy even. You can't really see the fight too clearly, but what you can hear mocked up is a tussle happening mostly off screen in a flat out fight scenario. At the end of this fight, or maybe even during it, a man was dead. At some point, it progressed from a fight to a six-time shooting. Stop the tape. Back it up, like in a film. There. What I can see and you can't hear at all is a man who enters from the side of the frame. He's not involved in the desperate fight. We can't see the fight, but this new guy is definitely on the run, or was before we paused it, from left to right across the screen. You can't see his face, it's shadowy. He's holding something in his hand. Can you zoom in? To be clear, I'm not talking to myself here. A guy called Bob is operating both the CCTV tape and the mocked up audio. You won't hear from Bob because he's not really relevant to the case. He's just a tech guy who works at National American Radio. What's that? Well, it looks- I edited Bob's reply out for the reason I just mentioned, but he said it looks like a gun, or at the very least a silhouette of one. And I think he's right. Can you zoom in? Uh, no. Bob said no because, and I quote, this is real life, not fucking Jack Bauer. Bob's references are old, and to be honest, I don't like his attitude, which is also why I edited him out of the podcast. But there's no denying that what I'm looking at and what you're listening to is a man on the run. A man on the run with a gun. Silhouette of a gun. Remember Maggie? She told me she was there. But was she? She shouldn't be. Because what happened on the other side of a dense hedge from where Maggie was confined to medical care, a hedge that to my eyes at least looked impossible to see how she could find to push through. She told me on the phone before she was taken off it that she wasn't involved in the desperate fight. But this tape says, or shows, different. It's awkward, but I need to talk to Maggie again. Hello? Hi, it's Mason Lane again from Cold Case Crime Cuts. The crime podcast? We spoke before when you told me not to call again. For clarity, a child didn't answer the phone. Once again, we've replaced the adult voice with the voice of a child to keep things above board. This is a secure medical facility. If you want to talk to a patient, you'll need the appropriate clearances and permissions. It soon becomes clear that this child actor, when pressed, doesn't even know what those appropriate clearances and permissions even are. It took a while. The adult head of the facility and the hollow and unenforceable threat of legal action for obstructing the investigation of crime by a podcast. But eventually, Maggie came on the phone. Hey, Maggie. Silhouette of a gun. We'll get to that. When I tell her about the tape of the fight from the CCTV from the woods, she remembers much more than she did earlier. And fast. It doesn't so much jog her memory as sprint her memory. And that's because, and it's another revelation, Maggie is on the tape. I remember now. The shadow, the night, the 
silvery night, the moving stars. How did they move, Maggie? Slowly. This is a lie. And there was a fight. Yes. A desperate fight. And a hedge. Did you see the fight through the hedge? I couldn't find how to push through. It is a dense hedge. I watched a vision forming. It, It wasn't a vision, Maggie. It was real. A real fight. A real desperate fight. I see dead people. Just one dead people, Maggie. Just one. Maggie's on the CCTV tape. Earlier, she told me all she saw was the silhouette of a gun and that she couldn't remember whether she was caught in the middle of the 105 or was far away on the other side. But she was neither, because the tape puts her in the grounds of the Moonlight Medical Facility the other side of the hedge from where the fight took place. Digger. Remember Digger? Digger told me he saw a woman at the tautologist time of 4 a.m. in the morning. But it can't have been Maggie, because she was behind a hedge where the camera could see her. But Digger, on account of being half a mile far away on the other side of the 105, could not. We're edging closer to the truth. We'll find out what it is next on Cold Case Crime Cuts. We know that you're a ranch farmer. That's why you've been listening to this podcast. At Ranch Davidian, we've been helping you with your horses and other animals since this was all Native American land. We won't take up much of your time. We know from analytics that you're listening to Horse Pod while you're out moving your livestock around your ranch or breaking a stallion. But we wanted to let you know that we're here for you. From lassoes to spurs to saddle butter, we've got everything you need to work with thousands of acres of horses. Check out our new horse drones that let you watch your big horses from those big Montana skies. Also works in all states and all other skies. We know you work with horses, so find us online at ranchdavidians.usa for all your American horseplay. Ad targeted and placed by Precision Commercial Targeting and Placing Boston. Welcome back to Cold Case Crime Cuts. I'm Mason Lane. Just before the break, we were edging closer to the truth, but before we do, let's edge slightly further away again to Digger Fliskin from earlier. Digger lives at the side of the 105, the road that passes through Dutchess County on the far away on the other side of the trees and the hedge that surround Moonlight Medical Facility, where Maggie, also from earlier but more recently than Digger, is a patient. Remember how Digger told me he saw a woman caught in the middle of the 105? Well, the 105 has no central reservation, or median, as we say here. And remember also how he said it was 4 a.m. in the morning? Well, the timestamp on the CCTV backs up Maggie's statement that she heard trees whisper in the evening. Although she also goes on to say that she heard them sing a song of sorrow and grieving, which we have already established can only be the ramblings of a troubled mind. But while her mind was rambling, so were her feet, across the grounds of the hospital and to the edge of the hedge through which she saw a man die. It's time to drop more of the interview with Digger into the edit. Come to think of it, it might have been a man I saw. Caught in the middle of the 105. Uh Uh-huh. Digger... I've seen the middle of the 105. I've drove past it in the 1990 Buick station wagon with a damaged muffler. There's nothing in the middle to get caught in. It was dark. Maybe I didn't see too clear. When I spoke to you on the phone and I asked you what time it was, you said 4 a.m. in the morning. Uh Uh-huh. Are you sure? It was dark. Maybe I didn't see too clear. Could it have been earlier, say, evening? Maybe. What kind of night was it? Uh Was it heavy? Was the air alive? Uh Under intense questioning, Digger's story was falling apart. Were the trees singing? Yes. No, they weren't. Trees don't sing. We have confirmation of that from a forensic police meteorologist. Does he know about trees? No, that would be a forensic police arboreologist. But he knows about wind, and that's evidence enough for this podcast. I'm all confused. Digger, what are you doing out here by the road? We've been looking for you. Come on, back to the hospital. It turned out that Digger was a patient at Moonlight, too. 
I learned this when an orderly, the same orderly who didn't want to be on the podcast so her voice is played by a child, arrived in our interview. After some awkward questioning from her and a talking to to me from the state cops she called, it transpired that Digger Pliskin's version of events could all be made up. Prone to fantasy, elaborate stories, medication, taking advantage of a vulnerable man for a goddamn stupid podcast were just some of the phrases that were bandied about right here, by the side of the 105. It seems that what happened was this. On the night in question, Digger had wandered out of the ground of the Moonlight Medical Facility because he found a gap in the hedge, which enabled him to be able to find how to push through. His friend Maggie followed at some distance, but couldn't find the gap. She passed on, worried, and warning Digger that she could only stay put far away on the other side of the hedge. And so it was that Digger stumbled out into the path of an oncoming fight. So I enhanced the picture. This is Bob again. He's one of the tech guys who works for National American Radio, and he's got a bit of an attitude problem. Earlier, because of this, I edited him out of the podcast, but I'm including him now because he's found something crucial. So I enhanced the picture. I thought you said you couldn't do that because it's not fucking Jack Bauer. Don't be a cunt. At this point, I edited him out again. He's got a potty mouth. But what he found is significant. What he found was that if you lighten the dark areas on the tape by doing something, and this is a quote, you wouldn't fucking understand. You can see what's fighting. And let me tell you this. It isn't human. It's also not dead people. What it is, or are, is or are two very much alive animals, notably a bobcat and a raccoon, both native to this part of the state. And it's into this fracas that Digger runs, moving from left to right across the screen, and then, and we can see because the shadows, the silhouettes, change, that he gets caught in the middle of this desperate fight, while Maggie, on the other side of the hedge, doesn't know how to push through. But what of the gun? Remember that Maggie says she saw the silhouette of one, And there must have been an actual gun too, not just the silhouette of one, because a man was shot six times and silhouettes can't do that on their own. Or can they? I should have dropped this next interview in earlier, but I forgot about it until now. Uh, No, uh, silhouettes can't do that. Orinoco Flo is a silhouette specialist, perhaps the silhouette specialist at Chris Cornell University. From its original graphic meaning, the term silhouette has been extended to describe the sight or representation of a person, object, or scene that is backlit and appears dark against the light of background. Anything that appears this way, for example, a, a figure standing backlit in the doorway may be described as in silhouette. What about the silhouette of a gun? A silhouette of a gun is a, an image of a gun. It could be formed by a backlit actual gun, but on its own, the silhouette of a gun isn't harmful. It's conclusive. In other words, someone had to pull the silhouette of a trigger. The question is, who? And also why and how, but let's concentrate on the who. Short answer, we may never know. Long answer, there's no body. The tape itself shows no sign of one, even after Bob the Root Engineer did something to it that I wouldn't fucking understand. And I'm beginning to think that this whole case only really exists in Maggie's mind. It was Maggie who said she saw, all she saw, was the silhouette of a gun. And what is a silhouette if not quite another word for shadow, albeit with a different definition? The tape itself is full of shadows. It was a moonlit night, and the trees that Maggie says she heard whispering throw many shapes onto the floor. Who's to say that one didn't look like the silhouette of a gun? Certainly to a mind like Maggie's that also says it heard those same trees bursting into song. My investigations have led to a dead end. Indeed, the end perhaps being the only thing that ended up dead in this whole case. A case that is largely figmented out of Maggie and Digger's troubled imaginations. The discovery of a body would have perhaps backed up Maggie's story, but there isn't one. 
either in the tape or in the woods. There never was. Well, there was, but it was a raccoon's one. You could say that investigating this whole case has been a colossal waste of time and resources, but I say no, because we now know the answer to the age-old question, which would win in a fight between a raccoon and a bobcat? It's a bobcat. We have proof on tape. And because of this case, we also have firm, unassailable proof that investigating cold case crimes like this is incredibly important work. Thanks to me and my questions, Maggie and Digger will be held more securely from now on, have very limited access to phone calls, and receive even more intensive and invasive treatments to help them with their respective conditions. In the end, there may be no crime here, but I'm pleased to say that thanks to National American Radio, it's another cold case with a shut cover. Cold Case Crime Cuts is presented by me, Mason Lane. Our program associates are Lance Fuller, Alexander Metaxa, Jake Yap, Alex Sivright, and Naomi Denny. The writers are John Holmes and Gareth Saradag. Our yoga gurus are Pythagoras Snape and Sylvanian Family. Our associate associate is Cliff Pathmanathan. The legal team currently fighting the lawsuit brought against National American Radio by the Moonlight Medical Facility in New York State is headed up by Sarah Moodpoint. B.J. Baer trained the chimpanzee that was ultimately lost in the edit. You can find us online at Cold Case Crime Cuts with two T's and two S's. Original music by Jake Yap. Album artwork by Simon Fowler. Our engineers are Tony Chernside and Louis Blatherwick. Executors of The Will are Jeff Posner and David Tyler. Cold Case Crime Cuts is produced and directed by John Holmes. Thanks to Unusual Productions and Audi. Cold Case Crime Cuts is a byproduct of the studios of National American Radio at 10 Lala Plaza, New York City. And it is a very proud member of the Service to Air Sound Collective and Soluble Radio. Hello? Mason Lane? It's Bob, the technician. I turned the brightness up. There's a dead guy behind the raccoon. Not now, Wolverine.